Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to the darker side of boxing, season three, episode number seven. This episode is all about a individual from the world of boxing that many people might not know who he is. And we asked ourselves the question, who is Roberto Medina? Well, this episode is certainly going to tell you a lot more about who Roberto Medina is, his life inside and outside of the ring, and some of the most notable moments and I say notable very loosely because they're probably more infamous but this is certainly an episode that if you didn't know who Medina was you will not forget him after it. You certainly won't do that it's a a very difficult story to tell it's almost like we don't want to give too much away about this guy because the story sort of tells you itself and you don't want to drop any information early doors so to be quite honest with you for you listeners now just enjoy the story who is Roberto Medina well you're going to find out now it all begins way back when when John Edward Garcia also known as Juan Eduardo Garcia was born on Halloween in 1955 in Price Utah but moved with his mother and sister to Denver Colorado when his parents got divorced and Garcia remembered I had a sister but she was 10 years older, so it was really just me. His father moved to New York and was never seen again, so his mother remarried. Now, we don't have a huge amount on John Garcia's early life. Just what we've managed to do is gather some newspaper reports, but what we do know is that while living in Denver, he actually began to have problems at home and with the law from around the age of 12 to 13. And he recalled himself that his first brush with the law came when he was in the seventh grade. And it was for stealing a car, or as he called it, a joyriding incident committed with a friend. He was quickly picked up. His parents were called. 
and no charges were filed against him. His home life was short and sweet, and he said, the man my mother remarried said he didn't want me in the house. In fact, he apparently gave his new wife an ultimatum, and as John remembered, he said, either the kid goes, or both of you go. My mother told me I would have to leave. I was 14, and I thought I was a big man. I said, no problem, and I left the house. I lived with a girlfriend for a while. I lived in my car, with friends here and there. Now, somewhere between sofa surfing, sleeping on park benches, or in abandoned cards, John got himself mixed up in the wrong crowd. And before he knew it, he was getting arrested for some kind of misdemeanours. Well, one of those misdemeanours, one of his little tricks, was to nick a bag of shopping out of people's trolleys while they loaded their car boots. Now, it's a smart, it's a funny move from little John, but there were more serious issues that he was having to deal with. Like the mates he was running with, they all were heroin addicts. And almost everything they did was done to maintain their drug habits. Now, Garcia had found himself in a difficult situation. From no fault of his own, really. But it would mould him into the person he would become. And Garcia said, I think I was a good kid. But when you're thrown into the shark tank, you begin to act like a shark. I grew up fast. I run with a bunch of people who were stealing. They used their money for drugs, but I was never into that. I just wanted to survive. However, he would later confess that he did try drugs, but he didn't like the feelings that it gave him. Instead, listen to this, people, he sniffed paint. (laughs) Now, off his head on paint fumes by this point, knocking around with heroin addicts and no family to support him. His troubles with the law escalated into more serious crimes. And he recalled that I was young and on my own and I did a bunch of stupid, reckless things. Sources suggest that John Garcia was arrested 61 times in the Denver area, mainly for theft, vandalism and breaking curfew. In the end, he was finally sent to a juvenile detention centre for forging a $100 cheque, which he claimed he never cashed. But I was sentenced seven to nine on it. So seven to nine years after 61 times being arrested and then this $100 forged cheque. Nevertheless, it was not just the cheque forgery charge that got him such a harsh sentence, of course. It wouldn't make sense. He also got, he got done for additional theft charges. Uh, He got done for breaking and entering charge on a car and also an assault charge that a jury eventually acquitted him of. And you'll be surprised and probably mystified why he was ever acquitted of it. Garcia was lucky not to have got manslaughter on the assault charge after he admitted, I did shoot a man, not to death, but the jury convicted me of felony menacing threatening someone. He was sent to the juvenile detention centre at 17 on the breaking and entering of a car charge only while the other charges were pending. After a year in the centre, his case went for review and he remembered. They said I had messed up too many times. They said they couldn't keep me in the reform school, that they had to send me to a prison. He was sent to a minimum security prison and while serving time, he reached out to his mum on Mother's Day sending her a card and a plastic rose. He then rang home, telling the Tampa Tribune in July of 1985, she started saying, what do you want? What do you want? And complaining that I was running up the phone bill. 
I sent her the money to pay for the call and haven't talked to her since. That was five or six years ago. I have no idea where my mother or father are now. I guess I still have bitter feelings towards my mother. I accepted what she did, but she's still my flesh and blood. Ten months later, John Garcia demonstrated his Houdini act and escaped by, as he described it, I sawn off some of the bars and got out. They caught me around about a month later. Now, sources indicate that he was recaptured in Arizona for Grand Theft Auto and sentenced to 10 years in Cannon City, a maximum security prison, for escaping. He would only serve four or five years of his sentence, but this time he used his prison term to good effect. <laughs> Soaring off the bars. <laughs> I don't even know how you even do that. How does he get the soaring for a start? Well, either way, according to Garcia, he accomplished some things while he was in prison. And he said, I got my GED, a high school degree, got a barber's license and got about one and a half years of college credit for courses I took. He was eventually paroled in 1977, but was back in prison six months later for forging checks again and burglary as well. Medina said years later, when I was younger, I deserved to be in jail. Sure. I didn't know anything. I didn't care. The only people in jail are fools and idiots. You can get away with something once. Greed will make you do it again and you'll get caught. I know I was a fool. My record speaks for itself. Yeah, 61 arrests for a start. During his various prison terms throughout Colorado, Garcia also started to box, learning the fundamentals. He told Robert Selzer, when I was in the joint, I didn't want to be known as no sissy. There was a guy there named Westside Willie, and he encouraged me to start boxing. They had a boxing program there, and I did really well. I think I had 50 fights and lost one. He also gained some valuable experience when heavyweight Ron Lyle actually gave him boxing lessons, as well as participating in bouts against the Air Force Navy Academy fighters who would travel to the prison and take on the inmates in fights. Now, none of the fights were ever sanctioned. It was just a training thing, but it certainly improved him into a better boxer. It was boxing that Garcia believed steered him onto the straight and narrow, for a brief point, that is. And he declared that I started going down the gutter with all the rest of the trash. Then I learned how to box. It taught me to control my anger and it taught me a lot about people. It was a chance. While inside, Garcia earned respect and as a fighter, he said, boxing may have been the key motivation. I started when I first entered prison. I established a lot of respect in there. I won the prison title and kept it for seven years and it made me realise what life is all about. Garcia explained what boxing meant to him and that it was easier to rob someone and mug someone. But when you pay for something, you work for, you get more meaning out of it. Somewhere in between his 61 arrests, escaping prison and getting paroled in 1977, he found the time to get married to a lady named Julie. He and his wife would only be together for six months of their nine-year-long marriage because he returned to the slammer. After serving some time in the maximum security section of Rifle Correction Centre, an honour camp about 150 miles west of Denver, Garcia was then moved to the minimum security section in May of 1982. Prisoners were part of a work farm programme in which the inmates went out into the community and did road work. Garcia told the Tampa Tribune, 
it was an honour camp where I was. They'd pick us up and take us downtown to work. I worked driving a truck, watering down the streets. Effectively, he was assigned to drive a water truck, sprinkling the dirty streets of the town, keeping down the dust. According to Judy Sutton, a fugitive coordinator for the Colorado Department of Corrections, by June, he had seven months and 23 days left to serve before he was eligible for parole. It was at this point that Garcia decided that he had had enough. John McGill of the Lexington Herald Leader wrote what happened next in his sports column. So this is what John McGill wrote. He said at seven o'clock on the morning of June 25th, 1982, John Edward Garcia, positioned near the gates of a minimum security prison in Colorado, decided to make a break for it. He simply picked his moment, then breezed through the gates and into freedom. But what actually happened, Garcia drove that water truck to the outskirts of town. He parked up and he walked out in his prison clothes and to the nearby highway. From there, he hitched hike his way to California. As John Garcia began his journey as a fugitive heading towards Fresno, California, he found an identity card and he thought the guy in the photo looked like him. So from that moment, he effectively became Roberto Medina. Now, in another story that he told to, I believe it was the Tampa Tribune again, Garcia said that he actually bumped into a Robert Medina and his son, Robert Medina Jr., and decided to use the name or their name or his name and ditch his other aliases. Now, he had a load of aliases, by the way, but the two he had invented during this point, well, the one, I should say, is John Lavato and obviously John Garcia, his original birth name. Now, police records showed that Garcia adopted the name Roberto Medina he had used at least six different aliases previously. Now, while he was a fugitive and on the run and trying to make his way to California, he ate fruit from the trees and accepted handouts from the drivers who he hitchhiked from while on his travels. John Garcia explained that he had left the prison gates behind, said something else happened. John Garcia died, he said. He went on to say, I had grown up with that name, but Roberto Medino is who I felt I was. John Garcia was a bad guy. His life was nothing but crime. All he ever did for me was put me in jail. I didn't want no part of it. So when I left those gates, John Garcia died. The only time I use that name now is when I see my parole officer. Now on June 25th, 1982, at around 3pm, that is when the supervisors in the prison noticed that he was missing. It took him a little bit of time to figure out he was gone, <laughs> didn't it? <laughs> Figured the same thing. Yeah, he's made his way to California in that time, which uh, I don't know geographically how many hours that would have been, but you know, I could imagine it's a few to get there, and, and it took him a little while to realise he's gone. Well, John Garcia said, I had given them seven years of my life and I wanted to leave. I thought, this isn't happening for me. I was ready for freedom, so I left. I didn't hurt anyone breaking out or anything. I just walked away. He simply walked out of incarceration and back into civilization as Roberto Medina. And it's from this point forward we will now continue to address him as Roberto Medina. Now, if someone escapes from prison, you would think that the first place the police would search is at his wife's house. So, where did John Garcia, aka Roberto Medina, go? Yep, to his wife's house. His first stop was to see Julie Garcia. 
but she wasn't interested. However, she told him she had a cousin in Tampa, so he headed there. Medina recalled that moment as the end of their marriage, and he said, Things didn't work out between us, so I went. Now, he stopped off to meet her cousin, but he also told him to go away. Medina was running out of places to turn for help, and he remembered. I said, hey, I didn't ask for no handout. I took off. I wanted to go to the Florida Keys. I wanted to get as far away from Colorado as possible. He then hitchhiked his way to a friend's, who was a butcher. But once again, for the third time, Roberto had the door closed in his face, and the friend told him to turn myself in that it would be better for me if I did, but I couldn't stand it in prison and I didn't want to go back. While in Tampa Bay, Florida, the West Coast, which is better known for spring training baseball and pensioners from the Midwest, Medina lived rough. He then wound up in St. Petersburg, just across the bay from Tampa, and got a job as a maintenance man at a motel. He's got, like, it's incredible. I mean, this guy's got just over six months left of his prison term. Why didn't he just stay? It's crazy. Well, still with no place to stay, he slept on the steps or in a vacant uh, motel room until he had saved enough money to rent an apartment. He said, I got hold of a master key and slept in the rooms. I would wake up early and clean it up before I went to work. Elliot Tiford, a Los Angeles Times writer, explained that he struggled at first finding work and a place to live, but he stayed out of trouble. That's the important thing. Eventually, he found work as a handyman at a motel, as you, as you said, a maintenance man, and then working as a carpenter on the side, which is something obviously he learned in prison. Amazingly, and an absolute sign of the times, Medina, get this guys, even worked as a janitor at a school. He's in a, a fugitive from justice and he's now working at school. Insane. Now, the owner of the motel he spent most of his time at, at the time was Marilyn Graham. And she liked Roberto from the very beginning, calling him a sensitive, kind and compassionate man. She must have been very happy when he actually began to date her daughter, Kathy Graham. Now, with a place to stay, a newfound love and earning a bit of dough, he decided to get back to boxing. So he walked into the St. Pete Boxing Club, which was run by Jim McLaughlin uh, and brothers Mike and Dan Berman. And they were also, they run it together, but Jim was the originator. He was still a fighter at the time, Jim, uh, when he became a trainer and initially took on a dozen or so kids on his own, in his own backyard before scraping enough money together to buy and opened the St. Pete Boxing Club on July 26, 1982, which was on 1032 4th Street. The building he bought used to actually be just a normal house, but he managed to get a ring into the biggest room in the house, which sat just in front of the fireplace. And he would open the club in the afternoons and work as a general manager at a bar in the evenings. He put up a sign at the front window that read, Private Club, Members Only, but McLaughlin who couldn't turn away the kids who were looking for some respite from the sizzling summer days. He said, The first two weeks I rented the building, I had 14 kids in there. After my fight, I just decided I liked training kids more than I liked to do anything else. He would charge $20 membership. However, Jim rarely collected any fees from the kids who wandered in from the streets with no money. And he also said, We didn't turn away anyone. We wanted to help keep those kids off the streets and out of trouble but they just had no money. 
Mike Birmingham become the club's first member by chance when he walked past one day before it had even opened and he remembered. I was so thrilled that I joined up right away and I told him I could even help run it. I remember there was an apartment next door. I rented it on the spot. I was so excited. He had been trained by his older brother Dan, a former Golden Gloves champion, and he introduced him to Jim and the three became friends. They went on to lay the foundation of the successful gym which would go on to develop fighters such as David Santos, Jeff Lacey and Ronald Winky Wright. Through the years, the gym had to relocate due to financial troubles. But McLaughlin, who estimated that the club had 15 homes over the years, said one thing never changed and that was bringing through tough kids who were down on their luck. And he said, St. Petersburg is a lot tougher area than people think it is. We've had some street kids in here that could have survived anywhere. Everyone that walked in here was tough. They also had to deal with difficult conditions in the gym. And again, Elliot Tiford actually described the conditions in his article on August in August 1986 when he went to visit the gym. And he wrote that it is pass out on your feet hot on this Thursday afternoon in the St. Pete Boxing Club. Gangly kids crowd the doorway. Most of them only half wanting to go in. Perhaps it's the heat that keeps them out on the stoop. There is no wisp of air inside. It's cooler outside. Now, David Santos said that he had, or they, the club, had all sorts of unsavoury characters join the gym. He said, we had drug dealers come in and gang members, everyone. But they never lasted long. One time, we were located right next door to a bar. I remember every night, some drunk would wander over wanting to fight. So we'd let him in, into, get him into the ring, and he'd end up getting knocked out. Well, Roberto Medina was one of those type of guys. He was the escaped convict. Yes, he wasn't a drug dealer. In fact, it was mentioned often, very often, his work ethic and persistence impressed everybody, including Jim McLaughlin, who said the first day Medina walked in, he worked out for two and a half hours. He made a lot of people wake up. Well, the mystery man spoke little about his past and silently dedicated himself to amateur boxing. Jim McLaughlin was always clear that if you followed the rules, everyone was welcome, he said. In his own words, he said, there's not an older fighter that comes in here that hadn't been in some kind of trouble with the law. I just don't push their past. And to be fair, there was no need to do so because Medina, he worked every day. He worked out there every day. Often, he would be the first to arrive, helping to open, and then the last to leave. He worked 12-hour days in construction at this, at this time now. Then he would train for four hours at the club. And Jim McLaughlin said that what he lacked in talent, he made up for in heart. McLaughlin also explained that he had to change his boxing style from defensive to a more offensive one. And it paid dividends to his success as an amateur, winning 28 straight after two defeats. Jim explained he liked to play rope-a-dope, but he was losing on points. He never got hurt and was a fair fighter, but he didn't throw enough punches. Too much defence and not enough offence. Now he's all offence, all the time. The one thing that forced Jim to question this unknown man that had become an accomplished boxer without much experience was one peculiar tattoo. Now Roberto Medina had three, one on his arm, one on his chest and one on his back. But the one on his arm 
made him the most curious. And it simply said, John. Jim asked him about it one day and his reply was, it's a long story. And he never pressed the matter again. However, as time would pass, Medina would give a little bit more information. With Jim saying, he said he'd been in trouble, that he'd been in a street gang and run with the wrong people. He said something about being in jail once as a kid. Most boxers are. In a short matter of time, Medina had left behind a wife, a lengthy criminal record, his real name, and built himself a new life in St. Petersburg, Florida, as a respected boxer, a boyfriend, and a friend to underprivileged kids. Medina had showed enough talent that he was guided into the amateurs at lightweight, and his rise was a quick one that got him recognition immediately. In 1983, the Tampa Bay Times ran a piece on how far the St. Pete Boxing Club had come in such a short space of time, and due to his age, Medina was highlighted as one of the fighters who could be identified as the real-life Rocky Story. The St. Pete Boxing Club were winners of the state Golden Gloves team title in the Sunshine State Games at Winter Park. Now, one of the club's trainers, Rick Colson, who was actually assisting the, 20, the then 27-year-old Medina, who who also won the state games championships with a second-round technical knockout of a guy called Tim Barfield. And this is what Rick Carlson said. They don't mess with us. They know better than that. So this article was actually written by a guy called Bill Ward, who was a St. Petersburg Times correspondent. And this is what he wrote. He said, Medina is a tough-looking guy, fairly short but very muscular, with a stomach so tight that you could bounce quarters off of it. He looks mean with a few scars around his face. He said he got those cuts from street fights before he wised up and went into the gym to fight without bottles. Medina told Bill Wall that I wouldn't dare get into a street fight today. My hands are tools and I can't afford to mess them up on the streets. The article went on to describe that Medina moved to St. Petersburg a short time ago from Fresno, California, to be closer to his cousin in Tampa. He works in the daytime as a carpenter, but then late afternoon rolls around. He's down at the club or putting four or five miles of road working. Medina said, I've already lost one job because I wanted to be down here so much. Before learning to box, Medina said that he had an attitude problem a very short temper, but boxing has taught himself discipline. Medina said having a boxing club like this is so important to the community. It gets kids off the street to let off some steam. Nobody in St. Pete cares about us. Here we are, the top club in the state, and we could close our doors tomorrow and nobody would give a damn. Three months later, and Medina was back in the papers. This time, he had an in-depth discussion with staff writer John D. Harris of the St. Petersburg Times. He described that Medina was in Atlanta attempting to qualify for the US Olympic boxing team trials to be held later in the year at Colorado Springs, the same state that Roberto had escaped from prison. As we mentioned earlier, Medina had recorded an impressive amateur record of 28 straight wins with two defeats and 16 knockouts. Following his state games championship title in the summer, Medina then won the Florida Sunshine Games in Orlando with two first-round knockouts and then qualified for the United States American Boxing Federation tournament in Clearwater. Medina told John Harris, I feel I'm real strong for the Olympics. This is my first break. 
If I get to the Olympics, I'll get more recognition. When you get a chance like this, you have to take advantage of it. Once again, Medina's past came up, and as before, he explained his street fighting beginnings and how he was directed into boxing, but to forgot to mention, the most important fact was that he was in prison when this happened, and he said, I met an old man, he told me, why don't I take it to the gym? I don't think I've had street fights since. I talk my way out of street fights and just fight in the gym. Once again, Jim McLaughlin was quoted in the paper about his old, wise and strong amateur and he said, He's a tremendous hitter. He can hurt you to the ribs. I think he's got the edge because most guys his size can't hit like he can. He can hit like a middleweight and trade punches with the heavyweight. He's amazing. Well, unfortunately for Roberto Medina, he wasn't that amazing or maybe he just didn't want to win that fight because his Olympic dream was ended with defeat in the semi-finals on points while competing at the welterweight division, which was his, you know, is a heavier weight. It was a lightweight, weren't a welterweight, but you competed at that weight. And there's a lot of things you've got to wonder. You can't help but wonder if he meant to throw this fight, considering that he would then have to return to the state where he was an escaped convict. So we'll never know. Well, at the age of 28, Medina was still fighting as an amateur, but was approached by a 71-year-old man called Mike Bloomberg, who put on trade shows. And he recalled the moment he spotted Medina at the St. Pete Boxing Club hitting the heavy bag. He said, I saw him hitting the bag and I asked him, how come he hadn't turned pro? And he said, because no one had asked him. I told him, I'm asking you. And we became the greatest of friends. He didn't turn over right away. He clocked up a few more amateur bouts. But in the end, a lack of competition and the matter of his age forced his hand, which led to Bloomberg taking him under his wing as a professional. Now, Roberto Medina left behind the amateurs with a very impressive record of 94 and 3. But he would later enhance his record for publicity purposes. So we will have to take that record basically with a pinch of salt. I think generally it's probably 50 fights and over. And some say the last fight was that Olympic trial fight. But some have also said he fought on. So, you know, who knows? Who really cares? His new manager said, as in Bloomberg, they were scared of Roberto in the amateurs. He had never been knocked down in a gym. He's one of the hardest punches I've ever seen. He knocked a heavyweight down he was sparring against with a body punch. Together, they struck up a close friendship. But again, Bloomberg, just like Jim McLaughlin, didn't push his past. And he told the Tampa Bay Tribune in 1985, he wouldn't have put me in that position. We were such good friends. He wouldn't have wanted to burden me with his problems. I did know that he's had a rough life. In February 1984, a few St. Petersburg amateur coaches brought Medina to the attention of Brad Jacobs, director of boxing operations for Alessi Promotions in Tampa. Medina told Jacobs he had fought 50 amateur bouts. The promoter was sold and decided to sign him up. In fact, he would go on to handle all 15 of his first professional fights. Fighting under the fake identity of Roberto Medina, fugitive John Garcia turned professional on March the 15th, 1984, scoring a second-round knockout of Roosevelt Booth at the Curtis Hickson Hall in Tampa, earning $200 for his debut. In the space of just six months, he raced into a 9-0 record at lightweight with seven coming by way of knockout. 
He fought regularly on the small hall Tampa circuit at venues that included the Hyatt, Regency, the Egypt Shrine Temple and the Oasis Ballroom. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To make things even more extraordinary, some of these fights were broadcast on local television with his face and tattoos there in all its glory to see. Now, you would have thought that being a fugitive, Medina would want to keep a low profile. But to the contrary, he even appeared for a week on a radio talk show and played a visible community service role in boxing clinics around the Tampa and St. Petersburg area. Then on October the 4th, 1984... He then took on Juan Carrion, who was 10-1-2, and, and the Tampa Tribune reported on the fight. Sports writer David Alvonso wrote, In a good lightweight scrap with a controversial result, St. Petersburg's Roberto Medina and Miami's Juan Carrion fought to a six-round draw, a decision that many in the crowd of about 1,200 considered a generous decision for Medina. He complained that he was suffering from a pain in his side. Medina said, I couldn't take deep breaths after the second round. A result of a fried chicken lunch, he believed. <laughs> dodgy chicken slice. Better KFC. Uh, do- <laughs> yeah, dodgy chicken wing. <laughs> oh, wow. This guy, has he not been picked up? Well, following a points win a month later, Medina fell to his first defeat against a guy called Curtis Golston. And this guy was the journey to journey. He had like half his fights he won, half he lost. And there's only about 12 of them. It's crazy, like six and five records. That's ridiculous. And he lost his fight at the Egypt Shrine Temple on December the 19th, 1984. And the press wrote the most significant result of the undercard was in the lightweight bout. The visitor took a six-round split decision with a relentless attack that found Medina laying on the ropes and eating punches. So Medina was now 10-1-1, but his biggest fight was only two bouts away and with it, a route to national fame, but not just for his performance that night. We'll go into that, of course. So after taking a couple of months away from the ring to regroup, he returned with a knockout win over a guy called Robert Coleman in the first round. Afterwards, he spoke to the press and he was asked about his previous defeat and what happened. 
and he replied it was my fault. I was taking things for granted. I was getting knockouts so early that I got to where I wasn't sincere in my training. There was a lack of motivation on my part. I realised that I was wrong after the draw and the loss. I knew I was capable of doing much better. Well, two months later, Medina was back in the ring at the Egypt Shrine Temple, stopping a guy called James Vosa in three rounds to take his record to 12-1-1 with nine of his victories coming by way of knockout. Now, this is the big moment. So at this point, ABC, they needed a fill about and they turned to a six-round matchup between one of their future prospects, Meldrick Taylor, then 6-0 with five knockouts against Roberto Medina. Now, Dan Duva of Main Events approached uh, Brad Jacobs, who was obviously the promoter, with the offer, who in turn asked Medina if he wanted the opportunity to earn his biggest payday to date, which was $4,000, and a chance to obviously prove himself. Medina leapt at the chance and told the press, boxing so hard, you have to have something to motivate you. A fight like this motivates you. This is a, just a great opportunity. The Tampa Tribune spoke to Roberto once again when the fight was officially announced to take place at the Scope Arena in Norfolk, Virginia on July 20th, 1985. The article was titled Opportunity Knocks by David Alfonso, who wrote, A few years ago, Roberto Medina wanted to be a beautician. These days... Medina makes his living trying to put anything but a pretty face on the people he deals with. Medina is a fighter, and a pretty good one. David Alvonso went on to explain that Medina earned $200 in his debut, while his accomplished opponent and gold medalist Taylor earned $50,000 in his. Medina is quoted as saying, When you climb that first big hill, there are all kinds of doors of opportunity ahead of you. I plan to burst this door wide open. Two weeks before the fight, Medina was sent to the secluded area of Kalamazoo in Michigan with trainer Henry Grooms so he could get himself prepared mentally and physically for the challenge ahead. Medina said, I think it was a good move. I'm more at ease up here, more relaxed. I'm able to concentrate better. Fugitive Roberto Medina still did not keep a low profile because of who his opponent was and there was more attention on him and the fight which would be aired on national television. Shortly before the fight, he was interviewed by Howard Cassell, and he even spent time with Randy Gordon, the ABC commentator who flew to Tampa to meet him. Gordon recalled, He was such a nice guy. He picked me up at the airport, it was a hot steamy day, and on the way in, we saw a car stranded on the side of the road. Medina asked Gordon if he minded stopping. No problem, said Gordon. Well, there was an elderly couple in their car and Medina, seeing that a hose to the radiator had broken, got some electrical tape from his car, mended the hose and even let the couple sit in his air-conditioned car while he ran a half a mile to the petrol station to get some water. And Gordon recalled that when he got back, he was soaking wet. Afterwards, the man pulled out a $20 bill, but Roberto told him to keep it. So when we got back into the car, I told him, Roberto, you're an okay guy. That was really nice what you did. It was at that moment that Gordon, who was oblivious at the time as to who Medina really was, and in hindsight, he said, looking back, I think that right then he started to tell me. I think he wanted to, but then he held back. Instead, he just said, Randy, 
I guess when you come from where I've come from, and he sort of had a bit of a gap, he said, I ran with some guys, and there was another pause, and he said, but we won't go into it. Let's just say my background wasn't too perfect, and if I can help a couple like that, it makes me feel good. Well, Medina said that he had bad feelings before the Meldrick Taylor fight. He said he was plagued by dreams of someone chasing him, that he had an inkling that he was about to be exposed. ABC were able to squeeze in the fight after Mark Breland scored a first round knockout and Penel Whitaker was also on the card, did likewise in two rounds. So into the fight. And we're not going to break this fight down because quite simply, over the course of six rounds, Meldrick Taylor gave Roberto Medina an, a, a beating of beating. He gives him a, a shalakin, as they call it. Uh, but the fugitive, he just refused to retreat. Now, the ringside computer clock that Taylor had hit Medina with 383 punches in an 18-minute fight, taking a clear points decision. Now, battered, bruised, but yet euphoric, Garcia left the ring, or Garcia Medina, whatever you want to call him, he left the ring to a standing ovation and made his way to the dressing room. The Tampa Tribune explained, Off Medina went to his dressing room, a gaggle of press followed. He was beaten, but proud. Before Medina arrived in his dressing room, he was stopped by the press and asked about the fight and if he considered quitting. And he replied to the question and said, No, I never considered quitting during the fight. That's the whole purpose of training and fighting, to give it your best. I think I did that. Then out of the blue, a reporter laid this one on Medina. Roberto, there's a rumour going around ringside that you're a fugitive from justice in Colorado. Any truth to that? Medina's expression and voice did not change as he answered. No, didn't know anything about that. As Medina walked away from the press, he was followed. The Tampa Tribune described, Unknown to Medina, who was warmly patted on the back by fans as he walked, a gaggle of Norfolk's finest was also following him to the dressing room. They'd been there all afternoon, let the fight go off, and then waited outside as Medina talked to reporters. One of his trainers that night described what happened when he tried to enter Medina's dressing room. And he said, After the fight, I went to Medina's dressing room and I was told I couldn't enter. I told them I was his friend and they still didn't care. I asked them if Roberto had collapsed or something and they said he hadn't. Then they showed me their police badges and I realised something criminal had happened. A few minutes later, Roberto's girlfriend came out of his dressing room crying her eyes out. I asked her what happened and she said, he's not the person we both think he is. The Tampa Tribune clarified, shortly after the reporters cleared the dressing room, the police moved in and told Medina they had to take him in because they had probable cause to believe he was in fact John Edward Garcia, a fugitive from justice in Colorado. <laughs> wow. He's been found out. <laughs> he's finally got caught and it took a... Well, this is it. How did he get caught? You'd think maybe it's the television cameras, the public appearances. Well, interestingly, it wasn't the public appearance that appearances that arose suspicion. It was a woman scorned who informed the police in Denver that a fugitive called John Garcia, who identified himself as Roberto Medina, would be performing at the Scope in Norfolk, Virginia on Saturday afternoon. Well, in Virginia, detectives received photos of Garcia, along with the descriptions of three very unique tattoos, including 
one of a rose on his chest. So we've only given you the one, which is obviously John and the rose on his chest. Now, the police knew about Garcia's whereabouts a couple of days before the fight. And we will now identify him as John Garcia again for a while. In fact, they knew where Garcia was staying. When he arrived, when he would leave and where he would go after. However, they didn't want to arrest him until they were absolutely sure they had their man. Now, you would have thought that at the way, and it would have been the perfect opportunity to identify him and arrest him, because by then he would have taken off his clothes, obviously, at the way in. But for some reason, they wanted to wait until after the fight. Now, you can't help but wonder that the police may have struck a deal with the ABC just to make sure the show went ahead as planned. And to be fair to everyone involved, they probably thought it was just some kind of hoax. I mean, who in their right mind would think that Roberto Medina was going to be a fugitive from justice? Well, there you go. And, and continue to put, I mean, this guy's continued to put himself in the limelight for all the world to see. Now, when Garcia made his way to the ring, officers blended into the crowd as they waited for that moment to get confirmation that John Garcia was indeed Roberto Medina. That moment came when he disrobed in his corner. And that, was when they knew they had their man. And Norfolk Police Lieutenant Curtis Todd said, when we saw that, as in the rose tattoo, we knew we had the right guy. Before that, the identification was kind of iffy, but he did have a third tattoo, which Sean, you will be able to explain. While contemporary news accounts focus mostly on the rose tattoo, it was likely the ink Garcia modelled on his back that sealed it for the authorities. It was a depiction of a man and a woman having sex missionary style. Now, Garcia didn't explain the reason behind his tattoos, but he said they were a part of my life that I can't change. I've got to live with it. What can I do? I have them and I can't take them off. I'd have a big scar if I did. I'm sorry I put them on my body. Yes, but what's done is done. Garcia's trainer, who was refused entry to his dressing room after the fight, said, this is just incredible. I'm stunned. Why did he take up such a visible job? He could have been a carpenter, which he is, and probably stayed out of jail longer. Garcia was allowed to shower off and get chains before he was handcuffed and led away, while Randy Gordon, sitting ringside, began to shout, They've got the wrong man! They've got the wrong man! <laughs> now, the Tampa Tribune continued with their version of events, and it reads, Garcia did not protest or question, the police witness said. A trip to the Denver police led to his arrest. Then, Denver police called the Norfolk police on Friday, July 19th, 1985, and informed them of their suspicion that a man they wanted would be fighting on the card at the scope Saturday afternoon. A description was given and fingerprints sent. At the jail, Garcia was fingerprinted and a match was made with the prints that had been sent to Colorado. After getting checked by a doctor, his face was significantly bruised from the fight. Garcia was put in a holding tank. He was held without bail, pending a hearing on the Monday morning on his extradition to Colorado. Well, interestingly, Kathy Graham, who had seen him in the dressing room, come out saying, we don't know, we didn't realise he's the man, whatever, and all this, she was... It was a bit of a fake, because Kathy Graham actually later admitted that she knew about her boyfriend's past, and that so did another woman, obviously the woman that grasped him up, who Ms. Graham uh, believed le alerted the authorities about him. 
Garcia said that he suspected his former girlfriend as the person who told Denver police of his whereabouts and new identity. And this is what he said. He said, I guess I made the mistake of telling her in the first place. She had threatened me that if I didn't take her back, she was going to turn me in. So he knew about it, but yet he still went ahead with it. Kathy Graham went on to explain that she was introduced to him by another boxer about two years ago. After going to see Garcia sort of in his holding tank, she told reporters that they're treating him real nice. I saw him last night, but today they said Saturday was the only visiting day. She then said how she found out about Garcia's past and why she didn't advise him to turn himself in. She said their relationship was about eight months old before he told her that he was a fugitive. She said it was hard to believe Roberto, John, was always a gentleman, always soft-spoken. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He offered a few details of his past, telling Kathy only that they that he grew up in Fresno, California, lived for a while in San Diego area, and was in trouble in Colorado. And she recalled that I left here that. I didn't pursue it. Another one that didn't. He told her that he had served seven years in prison but was on a work release program and that one day just walked out the door and never went back. Garcia said, I felt bad about all the people. I didn't want those people thinking I was a phony. All those people trusted me. He then said he knew who called the police, obviously his ex-girlfriend, but doesn't want to say anything in case that person somehow winds up floating face down in the Tampa Bay. <laughs> what the fuck? And uh, he'd be the first one to be accused. Is that an empty threat? Well, Is it an empty threat? Exactly. Well, That's we will what find out. <laughs> well, a detective with the Denver police, Dennis Cribare, called John Garcia a career criminal and that he had personally arrested him several times for charges that included theft, auto theft, burglary and assault. Jim McLaughlin said, We were in the Bahamas at a boxing tournament when we heard... We were shocked. The first thing we said was, they've got the wrong guy. Then the only thing I could think of was, how could I help? Of course, it was big news for the tabloids, who all ran the story of the fugitive boxer who was arrested on national television. They all reported that on July 22nd, 1985, Garcia surrendered and agreed to return to Colorado to finish his prison sentence. He was quoted by many, saying that he stayed out of trouble since moving to St. Petersburg, where he worked as a maintenance man and carpenter, and that his trip to Norfolk was worth the risk. Garcia told the Tampa Tribune, 98% of the people who get out of prison go back for the same thing. They look for you for a while and then just figure that you'll be back. Once a mess up, always a mess up, they figure. But I didn't do a thing while I was in St. Petersburg. I got a ticket for driving without a license once. That's it. I figured if I didn't get in any more trouble, no one would find me. I loved boxing so much that I guess I just ignored thoughts of being found out. I wanted to do it. Sometimes you take a gamble, and I guess I loved boxing so much I was willing to take that gamble. So here I am. I'm sorry I disappointed some people, but I'm not sorry I went to Norfolk for that fight. 
we put on a hell of a show for the fans. Well, he also went on to say that if the police hadn't been tipped off, they wouldn't have caught me. Nobody recognised me. Capture was always on my mind. I tried to put it out of my mind, and I did a pretty good job of doing it for three years. Whoever turned me in tried to hurt me, but they helped me. They did something I wasn't able to do myself. Ah, beautiful. <laughs> well, Judy Sutton, a fugitive coordinator for the Colorado Department of Corrections, who we've mentioned earlier, said that Garcia would be returned to Colorado probably at the end of the week. And she said, obviously, we will not take him back to that honorary camp. Absolutely not, because he'll escape again. Uh, Judy Sutton confirmed that Garcia would be placed in the Garfield County Jail pending disposal of uh, administrative charges which are violations of the code of discipline and any escape charges basically so he's, he's ready to be sentenced then he will be returned to colorado state penitentiary in cannon city now brad jacobs spoke on the telephone with the tampa tribune as well obviously a few days after this and he said it, it was an incredible scene and series of events that took place i suppose that is quite an understatement after he was arrested, he requested to speak to me and I did speak to him. Basically, he apologised profusely and wanted to make sure that he didn't affect us at Alessi, the promotion company, and didn't affect his friends. He asked me to give the $4,000 prize money to his girlfriend. He kept apologising and started crying on my shoulder. He said he was in for seven years and didn't want to go back, which is why he left originally. From the reaction I saw after the arrest, he seemed resigned to the fact that he had to go back. It seemed like a big burden off of his back. As he said to me, if you play, you must pay. I guess it's time for him to pay. He realises that now. Everybody supported John Garcia. Brad Jacobs said he was totally surprised to discover that Garcia was a fugitive and said he was a good person, a good boxer, and just a model citizen in the time frame that I knew him. In all that time, he was always polite, yes sir, no sir, and very intelligent about his boxing career. Garcia's sparring partner, Harvey Hester, said, If he was that other guy, he never showed it. He was Medina, the convict and everything. I don't know about that. Medina, he was a good person. Marilyn Graham stated, We're devastated, not by his deeds as a teenager, but because he's not with us now. Jim McLaughlin explained, if you met him, you liked him. If anybody proved you can turn your life around, Robert or John or whatever, proved it to me. He didn't have much to say about his past and I didn't press him. McLaughlin also told the Tampa Times that Medina was the most even-tempered boxer at the club. He never got into any fights, never got mad. He was one of the most law-abiding citizens I ever knew. Now I know why. Mike Blumberg the manager and friend felt the same towards Garcia and he said, you can't dislike Roberto, he's just such a nice person. I had him over to my house dozens of times, he played with my grandchildren. The kid was like family, like a son. He was dedicated to boxing. He never smokes, never touches alcohol, not even coffee. He was always training, working out. I think boxing gave him back his dignity and he was dedicated to it. I'm dumbfounded by what has happened. Garcia's girlfriend, Kathy Graham, said, I've known Robert for about two years. Robert's so soft-spoken, such a gentleman. If you were a friend, there wasn't anything he wouldn't do for you. A lot of people liked him by the sounds of him. And yeah, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't uh, 
drink coffee, but he certainly likes to sniff paint. <laughs> but anyway, however, the one person, there was one person that weren't too best pleased, and that was his ex-wife, or soon to be his ex-wife, who he abandoned. That was Julie Garcia, who was living with her mother, and she characterised him as a smooth manipulator with a darker side. She said, it makes me sick and angry that they put him on this pedestal. What about what he's done? Done here. This is reality too. Well, many began to ask the good question of how, how John Garcia was able to fight professionally for over a year under a different name and not get caught. And Jacobs and Doug Beavers of the Virginia Athletic Association, which sanctioned the fight, both said the usual procedures were followed in identifying fighters. And Jacob said that the precautions are that each fighter has to be licensed by the state of Florida before he can fight here. Now, they, as in the fighters, are fingerprinted and the prints are turned over to the FBI, but we've never had a negative report on a fighter come back. So, oh, God knows what they're doing, the fingerprints. Beavers, the uh, assistant director of VAA, said this guy was an established pro fighter. I had seen him five times on USA Cable. He was rated in the boxing computer. It's not like he was somebody who walked in from the street. There was no reason to run an FBI check that doesn't even make sense. He didn't have the best day he could have. He got he took a good beating in the ring and got arrested. It's just one of those days, he said. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Medina's trainer Jimmy Williams said that he didn't get involved in his fighters private lives he says I train fighters no guys wears a sign on their back saying who they are they try to tell me I say go into the ring I'll see who you are in there and I start and I stay in a gym basically I don't go at the door with them so basically he's saying if someone tries to talk to him he's like just get in the ring and show me who you are in the ring I don't give a shit who you are outside of it but an even better question was how did none of the police departments catch him? He embarrassed the law system and showed just how easy it was to remain undetected. He certainly was very good at being a fugitive for all that time. The fact, that he, the fact that he was a pro boxer, the fact that he was licensed in Florida, the fact that he was fighting on a sanctioned show, it just makes you wonder, doesn't it, how he was able to do what he was able to do for that period of time. Now, Jim McLaughlin recalled the incredible moment that Roberto Medina was at the wheel of a car when a police officer pulled him over for a possible traffic violation. And he said, oh boy, I don't have a driver's licence. But he was so cool, it was unbelievable. With Medina facing a 12-year stretch due to his escape and previous sentences, his friends from St. Petersburg wrote to Colorado Governor Richard Lamb pleading for leniency. Despite his criminal past, Garcia insisted that he had self-rehabilitated himself over the years and that he had become a good citizen in St. Petersburg, telling the Daily Sentinel, I was a citizen there. The law was looking for John Garcia to turn up in jail or in a police report. Well, I got rid of John Garcia. I was Roberto Medina. I was living a respectable life. When John Garcia was deported to Colorado for sentencing on October the 8th, 1985, Judge Thomas Osola sentenced him to five years, stating that although he showed good behaviour while on the lam, he was still serving time for forgery, burglary, conspiracy and felony menacing for shooting a man, plus he escaped from prison. But he did confirm that if Garcia continues his good behaviour, he may be eligible for parole in 13 to 16 months, but for now, he was back behind bars. 
Then in May of 1986, Garcia's attorney, Jersey Green, managed to have his sentence reduced and he said, we believe that he'll be going before the parole board on June the 3rd and that he was optimistic of his release due to good behaviour. Indeed, he was released as anticipated thanks to petitions from his friends in Florida who helped him gain early release along with his good behaviour in and out of prison. Garcia reflected on the moment that he decided to walk away from prison or walk away from his sentence in 1982, even though he only had months left to serve, which is just crazy and why he deserved a second chance. He said, the escape was a spare of the moment thing. It's like I told the parole board, I can't say I'm sorry I did it, because if I said I was sorry, I'd be sorry getting into the life I found. I just say that what I did wasn't right, but I found myself. So John Edward Garcia changed his name legally to Roberto Medina on June 8, 1986 as well. So we will refer to him again as Roberto Medina because that's what he called himself. He does change his name again, but you know, for now. He said that I'm not proud of anything I've done. I've been through a lot. I'm me now. I'm happy. I'm not two people. I'm not that other dude. That's all been disposed of. So as Roberto Medina began his walk outside the prison gates legally, and by the way, you know, he's on parole. So if he does anything, he will go back inside. But he's been a good boy. So, you know, can he maintain that? Well, Medina promised himself that he would have another crack at boxing and decided he would embark on a comeback at the age of 30. Kathy Graham was at the prison gates to welcome Roberto back into civilization. And he also met his mother for the first time in eight years. He held no grudges against her, saying it was my stepfather. I understood what she had done. I don't blame her for nothing. I had a mind of my own when I got into trouble. I don't hold anything against her. She is my mother. He actually bought a Jeep from his mum. And with Kathy, they drove back to St. Petersburg. And he said it was like a vacation. Then on June 30th, 1986, the Tampa Tribune caught up with Medina and now his fiancée, Kathy Graham, who were back living together again in St. Petersburg. Medina said, I expected to get out around December of 1986. To get out a few months earlier was a gift. They, as in the prison officials, must have seen good in me. They were willing to gamble, if you want to put it that way, to give me a chance. If you look at my past life, you might say, well, he belongs in prison. But I think they looked at the last three years of my life and said he must have rehabilitated himself. Returning to a maximum security prison was more of a relief than anything else for Medina. And he said, I was carrying a giant burden. I always felt it was inevitable I would go back to prison. A tremendous pressure is off me now. I can sleep without wondering what's going to happen in three or four months time. While waiting for divorce papers from his ex-wife, who he reckoned he couldn't find, Roberto and Kathy set their wedding for December the 14th, 1986. Mike Blumberg, who offered to adopt Medina, would be the best man. Roberto also wanted to make the effort to thank everyone who had helped him get released, with over 150 letters to various prison officers and judges were sent by his supporters. He said, being back in prison was very depressing. I had to be away from a lot of great people who believed in me. I've got a lot of people to thank. While in prison, Medina had surgery on his knee 
and was only a few pounds overweight, so he was eager to get back in the ring as soon as possible and start his comeback. He said, I just wanted to push it as hard as I can for two years and get whatever I can get. I know I can do other things. I'm a good carpenter. I can drive heavy equipment, lots of things, but I want to give boxing two good years. I love the sport. Well, he was due to fight in the September, but actually had to pull out due to an injured shoulder while, while he was training. He eventually made his return for $300, only an extra $100 more than his debut. And he gloved up for the first time in 16 months at the age of 31 and outpointed 22-year-old Bobby Van in six rounds at the Snaps Lounge in Leesburg. Now, Medina was adamant that he would not get paid so poorly again. He said, I'll tell you one thing. I'm not fighting again for no $300. I could deliver papers or bus tables for $300, but I have to get the show on the road. I have to prove that I can still do it and I'm still a crowd pleaser. I don't understand why I didn't get paid more, but who am I to understand? I deserve more than that, but I got a box. Not only was the money shit for his return, but he also had to overcome a very playful crowd who chanted, chanted things like jailbird, con man and three to five throughout the whole bout. Asked about the crowd's jibes, he actually said, everybody gets down on a convict. But I bet none of them will come up to my face and call me names. His last parting shot was to boxing, boxing itself. He says, he said at the end of this article, hey, I'm back. You write that. Tell them Roberto's back. Well, Medina's next fight was a thrilling battle, which was aired on ESPN. And he lost to fringe contender Terence Alley in January 1987. But his performance drew rave reviews for its entertainment value. And he said, I didn't feel like I was being beat up for 10 rounds. Going into the fight, people were saying, you're going to get killed, you're going to get killed. Well, I didn't get killed, but he did lose. Less than two months later, on February the 21st, 1987, Medina was stopped by the undefeated Angel Hernandez in Puerto Rico, which confirmed that Medina had now reached his full potential. Without a doubt, he'd reached his potential and he started to decline. And Jim McLaughlin said that he really became an opponent as opposed to a contender. In late 1987, Medina broke parole when he was stopped by police for drink driving. The parole violation meant that he was forced to serve out the remainder of his initial sentence of five years, so went down for four more years. After serving every day of his sentence with no early parole, this time he was released in 1991 at the age of 35 and decided to return to boxing once more. Roberto Medina signed with booking agent Johnny Boss, who told the Daily News, Sure, I'm taking a chance on Roberto, but you always take a chance in boxing. I think he's settled down. He's got to deal with his past every day of his life. With a record of 13-4-1, and he did seem to be turning his life around. He had a new wife, an 11-month-old son. He was working at a construction site for $6 an hour and aspired to still become a success story. And he told the Daily Sports News, I don't think I was ever really a criminal. I'm not making excuses, but I was forced into it by circumstances. The whole time I was in prison, boxing kept me going. I still think I can be a champion. Medina returned to the ring on November the 15th, 1991, 
and stopped Doug Shambaugh in five rounds of a scheduled 10. However, his first significant fight came four months later at the Blue Horizon in Philadelphia against Frankie Mitchell for the North American Boxing Federation lightweight title. Unfortunately for the Denver native, he was stopped in 10 rounds of a scheduled 12. In his last fight, Medina suffered a broken jaw at the hands of veteran junior welterweight Darrell Tyson and finally stopped boxing in 1992 with a record of 14-6-1 with 10 by way of knockout. It's funny how he goes down for a drink driving violation. Drink violation gets nicked and goes, does every bit of that sentence. And it's not mad, many isn't quotes, it? But, but not many quotes from his supporters that time round. What is the guy doing? I mean, what an, he knows he's on parole. Like He's out. Yes, he's released. Anything he does is going to go inside. And well, I mean, to drink drive as well, it's like such a shit, stupid thing to do, is it? I mean, it just, I think it sort of explains the mentality of this guy. But, uh, well, well, with no boxing and knocking on 40 years old, what did Roberto Medina do? Well, he went off the rails again and he became addicted to drugs and he was arrested for burglary in 1993. And you know what? This is crazy. But we were unable to establish if he actually went to prison for the burglary because most of the historic newspaper articles, which we were managing to source for this article, well, it went cold beyond this point, which is very frustrating. But we do know that on August the 8th, 1996, three years later, the Tampa Bay Times reported that Roberto Medina was suspected of robbing several banks and had returned to being a fugitive. Now, this is the article. It says, so it identifies each bank. It says the self-trust bank at 106th Avenue North and 66th Street in Pinellas Park on July 9th, the Barnett Bank at 8181 54th Avenue North on July 19th, the first nationwide bank at 11125 Park Boulevard on July 30th. 30th. The Barnett Bank on, it's the same Barnett Bank again, but this is on the 5701 38th Avenue North on July 31st. And then lastly, the Rutlands Bank at 2832 4th Street North on August the 1st. That's six banks. So in the last heist, as with the others, the robber actually walked in wearing casual clothes and sunglasses, used a note to demand money from the teller, tucked the cash in his wallet and walked out. Police were tipped that Medina might be their man after Times readers saw a picture of the robber on Friday's paper. Detectives said they were just beginning to piece together the rest of Medina's long story on Wednesday. Detective Steve Corbett said, once we heard he had this boxing history, I recalled reading the articles and hearing something about it on the news. It's too bad he wasn't able to catch on and become successful after boxing. Well, Jim McLaughlin, he was actually interviewed in this article, now 46, who flew to Colorado 10 years ago to speak in on Medina's behalf before a judge. He said uh, he wasn't surprised. The man he knew was a dedicated athlete and always polite outside the ring, but he was also a thief. McLaughlin said, What he is, is a very good con man. I think he should be in prison, to be honest with you. The Tampa Bay Times continued with their report, which read, 
McLaughlin saw Medina about a week ago outside the Kissing Cousins restaurant on 34th Street North in St. Petersburg. Medina, in a t-shirt and jeans, was upbeat and looked fit, maybe 10 or 20 pounds heavier than his fighting weight of 135. He pulled up his shirt to show off his stomach muscles and said he was planning a comeback. McLaughlin said, I just kind of laughed him off. I told him he needed to stick with working. Detectives believe Medina is driving a blue 1989 Chevrolet Beretta with the Florida plate FJY46J. He is believed to be with his wife Kathy and her five-year-old son. Police didn't know if the child was hers by Medina. Anyone with information on Medina's whereabouts is asked to call the police. And Corbett said, we'll get him. It's just a matter of somebody coming forward and saying I saw him at such and such a bar and such and such a motel. This guy's going to turn up. Times researcher John Martin also contributed to that story. Now they eventually caught up with him in Denver, Colorado, where he originally lived as John Edward Garcia and was back in contact with his father. On August 15th, 1996, the Tampa Bay Times reported that Roberto Medina, 40, was arrested outside the Denver area motel his father manages. Medina was getting into the blue Chevrolet the police were searching for before he was arrested. The article explained he was charged with one St. Petersburg bank and is considered the prime suspect in four other Pinellas country bank heists since July the 9th. Tipsters called police after seeing a photo of the robber in the Times. Well, the arrest came as a surprise to relatives in Colorado. His father said that Medina's trip seemed like an ordinary vacation with his wife and son. Garcia Sr. said he was stunned when the FBI showed up, but not totally surprised to hear that his son was in trouble. And he said, with him, it's always up and down. (laughs) Well, once again, the paper trail goes cold. But many have insinuated that Medina did go to prison for only one of those bank robberies and while behind bars serving his time he was charged again for embezzling money while in prison in 2002 which increased his sentence now if you think that we're done with Roberto Medina you're badly mistaken because this takes a crazy crazy turn now thanks to reddit we were able to grab valuable information on what happens next for basically this piece of shit, which we will go into. Now, while still in prison, Roberto Medina was charged in 2008 with a retrospective sexual assault on a 51-year-old woman that happened in 1987. Now, according to court's records, there was a match of Medina's fingerprint at the home of the August 1987 sexual assault of the middle-aged woman in St. Petersburg. Now, according to the 2009 deposition documents on the August 87 case, so this is what it says. So in 1987, the initial investigation determined that the suspect made a hole in the screen inside the window, moved the can of insect repellent, reached in and unlocked the rear door to gain access to the utility room of the home. And then in 2007, they identified the latent fingerprint on the insect repellent can as the right thumb of Roberto 
won Medina, because that is his name now, Roberto won Medina, just put that in the middle. Hispanic male, date of birth, the 31st of October, 1955. Now, however, the fingerprint wasn't processed properly, and that's why Medina wasn't charged until 2008. When Medina entered the home of his of this identified woman, he raped her and then attempted to strangle her. She was unconscious and believing she was dead, he left the home. But she didn't die. The only thing he took from the home after this brutal, brutal crime was her wedding ring, which they police later on, I think it's a year later, maybe a few months later, found at his residence that he lived at at that time in 987. That's... Holy shit. That's just took a really nasty turn. A really, really nasty isn't it? turn. Like, yep. you just, that's just something that you guys listening, just like us, probably wasn't expecting to happen, unless you already knew his case, of course. But if you didn't, wow, what a hell of a turn. <laughs> wow. you, you think he's gone from sort of smaller crimes to robbing banks which is a you know it's a significant crime but then to raping somebody and it's a retrospective situation where he's done this during sort of the peak of time where he was well known in in the boxing world wow now after being confronted with evidence on the sexual assault charge in 2010 he pleaded guilty the state of florida conviction for the 1987 sexual battery resulted in a plea deal whereby Medina's sentence was, in their words, to be served concurrent in federal prison. Therefore, he was able to serve his current sentence concurrently rather than back-to-back, which meant the sexual assault charge was absorbed into his other sentences. For example, if you get one six-year sentence and one three-year sentence, the total will be six years. This is because you will serve the three-year sentence at the same time as the six-year sentence. So what happened? Why did it take so long for the police to catch Roberto Medina, who was publicly arrested and was well known to the police, had fingerprints taken and was currently serving time in a federal prison? Now here is an extract of the June 15th, 2009 deposition with Lieutenant Michael J. Ring for the Roberto Medina sexual assault case. 20 years passed before having the fingerprints analysed again in 2007, resulting in the 2008 arrest warrant for Roberto Medina. So this is in a form of a, a sort of questions and answers session. So we are going to do the, the sort of questions and answers. So bear with us as we go through this deposition. How did you first get involved with this case? I picked up this as a code case and tried to reopen it and see if we could do something with it. Now you eventually established or came up with a suspect, correct? That's correct. How was that accomplished? Well, it began in 1994 by trying to have the evidence analysed at Florida Department of Law Enforcement. We weren't able to get anywhere at that time because of the technology. Then in 2007, I reopened it by having the automated fingerprint identification system section rerun the fingerprints and that's how we identified Medina from an AFIS search on the latent print that was lifted off an insect repellent can inside the point of entry of the burglar. Why wasn't this picked up before? Because he had been a guest in several state prisons, Colorado, and I can't remember the other state. This person asked. Correct. The question again. So his fingerprints would have been 
on record way back. You would have to ask the fingerprint guy, but it has to do with the sensitivity of the AFIS software and the way in which the latent examiners code the fingerprints and enter them depends on the quality of the fingerprint and the quality of the latent that's been entered by the latent examiner. So you could have prints. We've had many cases where we've had prints on file of people who had arrest prints that were made at a later date because of the sensitivity of the system and the way they're entered. So basically his fingerprints or the unknowns had been run before. That's correct. Medina's prints were in the FBI database, but because of the software or hardware or something where it didn't show up. Yes, that's correct. That's my understanding. But it would be better to get that from somebody like Bill Shade, who's the AFIS manager over at Latent Prints. So that was the question and answering as to how they come about and got these fingerprints. So Medina was now in prison on three charges. So he had a bank robbery charge. There were six robberies. He got done for one of them. While in prison, he gets done for money laundering while in prison. And then he gets that retrospective case, the sexual assault case on top of that. So he's free and he's serving six years for it or whatever how many years it is. I think it was 10 years, sorry. But because he pleaded guilty for the sexual assault charge, he then became the lead suspect. This is where it takes an even darker twist, guys. He becomes the lead suspect in two murders that happened six months before the sexual assault. So this is what we're going to go into now. So on February 9th, 1987 and February 13, 1987, elderly widows, Opal Will and Eleanor Swift were murdered within days of each other. Now, both were smothered with pillows from their own homes. Although no sexual assault occurred, both victims had their wedding rings stolen, like Medina's sexually assaulted victim. Police suspect Roberto Medina of the crimes because of their similarities and because they also got a match on him in their locations. What the fuck? Shit. What? what? Oh my God. Like, this is just getting even more down the rabbit hole than you could probably ever have imagined. And there's only one comparison at this stage and there's only one man's name I'm going to speak out at this moment before I move on. Tony Ayala. Oh, isn't it? It's so so similar, isn't it? But obviously not murder, but wow. Now, it was reported by WTSP, a Channel 10 television station licensed to St. Petersburg, Florida, on Saturday, December the 18th, 2010, that detectives most likely spoke with the killer face-to-face while doing more than 100 interviews with people in the neighbourhood, never knowing they had their man the entire time. Turns out investigators say the killer lived across the street from Opal Wheel. His name, detectives say, was Roberto Medina. Detectives believes he was a serial killer. A report in St. Petersburg, Florida, explained that both murder victims were targeted, hunted and murdered. And each time, the killer would take their wedding rings. A serial killer on the loose in the 80s was murdering elderly women all over Florida. Two of the cases were four days apart in Pinellas County in February of 1987. 
Detective Michael Bailey from the Pinellas Cold Case Homicide Unit said, you have to be a pretty sick individual to do something like this. There's no question about that. There were two women who never met, but they were actually closer than ever and forever connected. Their lives would go down in history as two violent serial killer murders. Detective Bailey said, each one of these ladies lived alone, previously married obviously. That was one of the reasons they were targeted. The similarities between Opal Wheel and Eleanor Swift were uncanny. The two women, both in their 80s, lived by themselves in Pinellas County, not too far from one another. They even had similar homes. Detective Bailey describes their homes and said, They were built in the 1960s style houses, concrete block, with an attached Florida room in back. In February 1987, they were both suffocated and strangled. Their bodies were found still in their pyjamas. And what seemed odd is that the murders happened just four days apart. Well, detectives say it was most likely done by the same man in the same way because each time he would take their wedding bands. And Detective Bailey said it probably was a trophy. Not too much value to it. Not a high-end ring like that. Robbery was not the motive. It was some type of trophy. Also, in each case, the killer would come in through the back door and grab a pillow from the living room to use as the murder weapon. And in one crime scene photo, this is just, all right, sends shivers down your spine, but in one crime scene photo, you could actually see the killer's handprints on the carpet where he crawled to the couch or the sofa, as we call it. I mean, that's just, oh. Detective Bailey said he knew exactly that they lived alone. It was not a random act. He knew about them before getting into the house. Now, Medina is already in prison for a similar case where detectives say happened six months after the murders of Opal and Eleanor. And Detective Bailey told 10 News there's just no way to know what's in his mind at that time. Although all three cases were very similar, close together in time and radius. In fact, they were within four square mile in distance. There was not enough evidence to charge Roberto Medina. One of the victim's relatives was able to provide evidence on Reddit as well as to why he wasn't charged. And the person explained that I have a January 9, 1997 Pinellas County Sheriff's Office or PCSO compiled report, which eliminates Roberto Juan Medina as a suspect in the Swift and Will murder cases. But the fact that he lived opposite Omer Will at one point, so he knew her, the wedding bands, he's in that location. Oh, it, it just, it put, everything points to him. And you can understand why they had him as a prime suspect. So effectively in 2010, he was a prime suspect for the two 1987 murders, although he was cleared in 1997 as a suspect to those murders, which uh, occurred only half a mile away from each other. I mean, it's incredible. So let's break it down a little bit more here. The 1987 murders were linked by police. Neither victim was sexually assaulted. Both victims were smothered with pillows from their own homes. Only wedding rings were taken from the scenes, as was Medina's victim. Each had their phone lines cut, so did Medina's victim. However, he cut the wrong line, so she was able to call the police. Medina had lived across the road from one of the victims and he was living in the same location at the time 
of the murders and the sexual assault. The main suspect was also identified as a Hispanic slash Latino male. Pinellas County Court records show that Roberto Medina was sentenced in January 2010 to 15 years in prison to be served concurrent with his other federal sentences at US Bureau of Prisons. He should still be in prison now. But unbelievably, Roberto Juan Medina was released in 2015 from federal prison and he is currently on probation for his federal crimes. He will remain on probation for his entire life, so one slip up and this guy is back inside. Also, if the murder cases are continually investigated, then there's hope that new evidence will present itself and they will be able to get a conviction. Now, before we end this story, we must also bring to your attention to three other unsolved murders that happened in the 1970s and that were also linked to Roberto Medina. On May the 31st, 1973, a 73-year-old widow, Esther Cochran, was strangled with a cord and sexually assaulted in her trailer in the Leolman area of Pinellas County, Florida. A small change purse is the only item identified as being missing from the scene. Two weeks later, on June the 16th, 1973, less than 2.5 miles away in Pinellas Park, 74-year-old Geneva Sanger was sexually assaulted and bludgeoned to death with a blunt object. And police believe the murderer went on a crime spree after killing Geneva, several petty robberies as well, uh, a rape and breaking into a house where he was discovered but managed to get away or talk his way out of trouble all in that same day. So hairs from a, a blackmail, though, were found at the scene. Six days later, on June 22nd, 1973, and less than two miles away, 76-year-old Helen Lazzetti was raped and stabbed to death. As in the prior two cases, only a purse was taken and hairs belonging to a black male again were found in the residence. Eerily, though, Helen actually had spoken with a neighbour about the preceding two murders and stated, boy, I would fight like hell if someone attacked me. And it appears that she did as signs of a struggle were noted at the scene. Now, although some conspiracy theorists do link these three murders in the 70s with Roberto Medina, he would have been 18 years old at the time, living in Colorado and in and out of penitentiaries. So the possibility of him being the killer are not impossible, but very unlikely, to be honest with you. It's very, very unlikely. But there are similarities and stuff, so, you know, I can understand why. In 2017... Catherine Vaughan, a former Tampa Bay Times reporter, wrote a piece on the families of the two murder victims. This is the 87 murder victims. And we're going to read the whole article because quite simply, I think it gives a, it paints a picture for everybody involved in this. And and I'll be honest with you, from the, from the office, before we even ran this off, I do believe that Medina is the murderer. I can't help. I think there's too much evidence to suggest he's not the guy. So we're going to read this in a way. So Bob Corey can't tear himself away from the crime, the true crime television. He watches cases solved on hair strands and saliva, wondering how things would be different if that golden ticket evidence was found on the scene where his grandmother was killed 30 years ago. He watches until the very end, even if the case seems unsolvable, hoping to witness the closure he and his family still don't have. Corey, who is 62, said some of these seem like there's no answer. 
But at the end, some little piece comes up and boom. People don't always get answers, but it's sure nice when they do. It was on February the 13th, 1987, the day before Eleanor Swift's 85th birthday that she was found dead. Someone broke into her home and suffocated her with a couch cushion, detectives said. Her death came four days after 82-year-old Opal Wheel was found beaten and choked to death in her home. Pinellas County Sheriff's Office detective believes that the cases are related. In both, the killer pried or cut open a back door or window to enter their single-storey homes in which they lived alone. In both, a strand of straight, brown Caucasian hair was left behind. In both, the attacker stole just one thing from the widows, wedding rings. Police also linked a third case out of Pinellas Park. Maria Ells, 75, lived through her attack, going to a neighbour's house covered in blood to get help. Investigators believe the attacker may have tried to suffocate her with a couch cushion as well and stole her wedding ring along with other jewellery. Sheriff's detectives declined to comment on the unsolved cases, but family members remember the eerie details. Wheel's niece, Rita Smith, said, I've forgotten a lot of things, but this I can see as clear as day. Smith was at work as a secretary on February the 9th, 1987, when she got the phone call from a neighbour telling her to come quickly that her mother couldn't take it. She dashed to the home and saw the police cars. Inside, she saw her aunt's legs through the door of her bedroom. She found her mother on the back porch shaken, already worried they would never find the killer. Smith, 83, said, My mother had a lot of premonitions that were true. A few miles away, Rebecca Corrie Overholzer heard the TV in her parents' living room blaring news of the slaying. Her heart sank, not knowing that just four days later, her brother and his wife would discover her own grandmother dead under similar mysterious circumstances. Well, Kathy Corey and her husband at the time, Pat, drove to Swift's home with their two-year-old son to pick her up for a birthday lunch. They knocked on the door with no answer. Unusual for Swift, whom Kathy Corey said was prompt and organised. Pat Corey used a neighbour's phone to call his grandmother. Um, again, getting no answer. So Kathy Corey said they used the spare key Swift kept outside to enter the home through the back door that led into the garage. The door to the house was open, a relief for the family, who assumed she must not have heard them at the door because she was in the garage. Kathy Corey, 61, said, It's fascinating to me now how people rationalise things as you go along. They called out, Grandma, Grandma. Everything in the house was neat as a pin, she said, not noticing a white cushion missing from the living room sofa. She went to check Swift's bedroom to see if she was getting dressed. Instead, she found her laying in bed with a cushion covering her head. A book sat on the right on the nightstand. Again, she rationalised. Grandma must have been reading and used the cushion to prop herself up. When she moved it, Swift was still her skin cold and pale with a half dollar sized bruise on her cheek. She died in her sleep, Kathy Corey thought. Not too surprised because of her age, but a little shocked given how active the woman was. They found the envelope 
Swift kept in her house with instructions of what to do if she died. It was a representative from the cremation society that told them to call the police. So once they've arrived, they're like, no, you need to call the police. The killer's motive soon became a burning question for both families as it became clear it wasn't money. Smith said in Will's home, the keys to her car were sitting on the end of the table in the living room untouched. In the table drawer was a stash of cash and in a bedroom, a cedar chest full of jewellery. Kathy Corey said Swift's purse and wristwatch were sitting out on a table. Desperate for answers and terrified, Overholzer wondered if someone in her own family was responsible. She said the mind plays terrible tricks when you have the person out on the streets. Investigators at the time told them the forensic evidence showed Swift stayed through the attack. She imagined her grandmother, paralysed by fear, maybe telling the attacker to take what he wanted. Wheel, on the other hand, fought back, detectives said, according to Smith. They found a can of mace spray on her dresser just out of reach. For both families, the deaths left gaping voids. Overholzer, a senior in a high school at the time, turned to alcohol in college. For a decade after, she couldn't trust anyone, she said, even God. Her strong Christian faith, shaken with the anger of how he could take away her golfing partner, her role model, her confidant. She said the shock of this really set my life on a different course. Rita Smith used to visit the sheriff's office once a year to read her aunt's investigative file. Her eyes would flit over people of interest and slayings from across the country with similar patterns, none of them substantial enough to close her file for good. At 84, Rita Smith hopes they crack the case before she too dies. She's forgotten a lot over the years, but the scene of her aunt's house, her legs in the bedroom, her mother on the back porch, it's burned into her memory. She said, I don't know how you get rid of that. I don't know if I want to. So the last bit of this story before we can uh, cast our views on this, Sean, is so this is another article written on January 4th, 2023 by the way by Gabriel Fanu and its heading is the killings of St Petersburg's Florida serial killer so this is what it reads it says in 1987 someone killed two older widows just four days apart what these two ladies had in common was they were single and in their 80s according to the belief of the St Petersburg Florida serial killer chose them because of this they lived not far away and even their houses were similar. Both were strangled by the same method, and detectives connected these two cases because the ring was taken both times. This was seen as the killer's signature act to take the wedding rings from corpses, not the theft of a valuable item. Now, according to two detectives, he must have been a very mentally ill person. In both cases, the killer entered the house through the back door and took the pillow from the entrance, which was the murder weapon. They even found the fingerprints on the carpet. Investigators say the killer had information about the women in advance and it was not accidental. For a long time, the St. Petersburg, Florida serial killer remained unnoticed by detectives and they did not realise that he was right under their noses. They could not understand that he had two faces. It is also interesting that Medina, at that time, lived on the opposite side of the house of one of the victims. 
The second victim was several miles away. Roberto Medina was arrested six months after the murder. His drink driving arrest, that's what he got done for. So literally at that same time of that drink driving arrest, this is when he potentially done these murders. He was charged for the rape and attempted murder of a woman in which the woman survived. Similar to the past cases, Medina took the wedding ring. The records of this case are no longer available online. And just to say thank you to all those people on Reddit that were able to provide all the information. Us in the UK couldn't actually gather some of the stuff they put out there and they actually copied it and print and put it all out there for us to present to you on this and to finish this whole episode off. So thank you to you guys and all the report reports we managed to find and everything else. But it just made one compelling and quite. I don't even know, Sean. I'll, I'll let you finish. I don't even know what to say about this story. It takes an awful turn, a deadly, disgusting turn. What a hell of a story it is. I mean, we started this story on the basis of somebody that was a fugitive. If you kind of agree with it or you don't agree with it, he managed to turn his life around and seemingly, seemingly looked like, yep. you know, he was he was on the right track. He was on the right path. He gets found out. He goes and serves the rest of his sentence he gets out a little bit earlier because of the testament of people around him saying how good of a man he is you know he's a role model to kids in the saint pete's boxing club you know he's he's a community figure at this point in time and he goes on he has his boxing career things slip outside of the ring again he ends up spending more time in prison and then it's really hit and miss with the reports of him over the years then, isn't it? And then obviously we get to the 2000s and all of a sudden, you know, you start to see more reports surface about him and it takes an even sinister turn because these are reports about a man that's essentially sexually assaulted someone in the middle of the night. Very much like the Tony Ayala story that we covered as well in the first season of this show. But what gets even more scary about this whole thing is these murders that we've just covered at the end. The murders of these two women are very eerie, very scary. And thinking about when these murders took place, this is at a time in America where it was so prolific for serial killers. I mean, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, you know, he's the first person that springs to mind here during this this period of, of time. And yet Roberto Medina is within the area, he's within the vicinity, he's already been done for a sexual assault obviously it was retrospect but he was around there at the time that these murders took place it is hard it is very hard he's not been charged with these murders and that's the first thing we have to sort of put out there he's he's never been charged with them he's he's effectively been ruled out of this case however if you put all the information together as a listener as maybe someone that is interested in true crime you might not be a forensic scientist or a crime scene investigator you might just be you know a, bl- a budding sleuth who, who watches a lot of true crime shows it seems very eerily scary at the fact that this could have been this guy and many people will probably have listened to this and gone yep that's him 100% that's him <laughs> and that would be their yeah. first first opinion uh, it's hard to sit here and say he is definitely the one that committed those murders in particular. And then you also hark back to the murders of the 70s as well. Again, the 70s in America in particular was was plagued with different serial killers at the time. So this could have quite easily have been another serial killer that was never found. So it is, it's a hard tale, really, because 
on one hand, you start to sort of come to the conclusion that this is definitely Roberto Medina. And then on the other hand, you have to then consider the possibility that actually there could have been someone else around that time, around the area doing these things because there were copycats of serial killers out there at the time. Yeah. So it is it's a hard one. And bearing in mind as well, at this moment in time, Roberto Medina is still alive. He is still with us. He's still on this planet. And it is a hard one because will if he did do it, will he ever get convicted of it before he passes? Will justice ever be served? Or did he not do it? And if, if not, who the bloody hell did? You know, them, mm. them poor families are never going to get justice for that. So it is a really hard, sinister tale. And I'm going to p- sort of swing this back over to you really now and sort of get your feelings on the, the overall story of, of Roberto Medina and uh, the actual ending of this story as to thinking about all the evidence that's been provided, thinking about he has been ruled out, thinking about the circumstances, where he was, the location, the radius, the the MO, the modus operandi of, of him as a criminal. Is it possible that he did kill those people? I did find some a little bit more information. It was like yesterday, and I just haven't had the chance to pick it up. So I did find that he was picked up by US Marshals for about a month somewhere they held him for a month and released him they just picked him up there was nothing they released had him released it had him in holding and released him obviously just probably just to find out where he is he is on a sexual a sex register uh that is one thing that he is on so he you know he, he's he's noted as a sexual offender but one slip up this guy will go inside looking at those cases though i mean the, the wedding ring is a very eerie thing isn't it and the fact that he almost killed his unnamed victim he strangled her thought she was dead and left so I don't really see where the only difference was her age. She was 51. Probably why, and like this is mad for me to say, I've watched a lot of crime stuff, but that is possibly a reason why he sexually assaulted her because she's 51 and not 80. I'm not even, you know, I don't even know where to go with that. There's, there's a lot of details though. Just he lived across the road from Opal Will. Some suggest he lived across the road from her at the time of the murders. There are others that suggest he didn't live there at the time. But he was, the police had him in and around the vicinity and not too far away from each victim. I mean, if he lived opposite that person, as one of them reports suggested, Opal Will, and it wasn't, it was only a few miles away to, to get Eleanor. I don't know. I, I just think there's too much. The ring thing, I, I don't, I mean, that is a very strange thing, isn't it? By all, so the sexual assault and the two murders both had the ring taken away. He's in the area. It's a very similar thing. Cuts the screen because obviously those screens they have in Florida to stop gators coming in, I suppose, in it and whatever else. Insects and stuff, um, yeah. Insects and stuff. So he's actually cut that climb through the window. They all had pretty similar. I think one of them had it cut as well. And even there was even a repellent thing there as well. It was yeah. weird. I don't, it's just that the fingerprints in the carpet they were unable to pick up as as much as the the uh, insect repellent. And one of the victims fought back. Now. I don't know which, I can't remember which one it was, whether it was Anna or Opal, but the fact is, is, you know, even now they do keep certain materials even back then. So you wonder if they could uh, get any skin, uh, you know, now it is now forensics is, has really come on leaps and bounds. You just, what you would hope, Sean, what I would love to, and for the victim, that's why we felt that it was important that we explain the family, the victims that they were also the victims too, and, and have their say on, on how they, how their grandmothers died and, because it just gives you the whole picture of the whole thing here. Look, you're right. He hasn't been done for these murders, but I think I do believe 
that something's brewing. And I think I feel like they've whether they've got enough information or and they're going to arrest him. I, I just don't. I, I can see there at some point, Sean, that we're going to hear him getting arrested for these. Something's going to happen. Something will come up. There will be new evidence of some sort. And you just hope that the police can continually do that. And I know it's difficult because, as you say, this is a time where there was so many that it was rife with serial killers. So you do wonder, you know, what makes these two any more important? I suppose for me, the fact that Roberto Juan Medina's out, I mean, he, I think he had more than six aliases. He, he had so many different names. I don't know, mate. I just feel that. And I think, he, I, I believe as well, I read that he's still living in the area as well. Same, the Florida area. So I just think the guy, the fact he got, he, he admitted the sexual assault. He should be in prison still now to this day for that. He attempted to murder that woman. He actually attempted to murder someone early in his life by shooting them. So you can understand why the 73 thing comes up because he's got history of trying to shoot someone to death. So I don't know. Look, there's a lot into this case, but it is it really takes a dark turn. At one point, you're thinking, actually, this guy has turned his life around. He's a good guy. Then all of a sudden, he turns into this absolute monster and it just blows your brain. I think like when you look at the forensic technology of today, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be in this position myself if it was one of my family members. However... If I wanted some level of closure to it, with the level of forensic technology they have today, like the grimmest sort of thing that can be done is an, an exhumation of the body. If the body is yeah. has been buried, if it's not been cremated, that is, if the bodies were cremated, then there's no way they were going to be able to do any sort of DNA tests based on the the, the remains. But if the bodies of these two ladies were were buried, then it's possible for an exhumation to, to take place so that they can actually then do all the DNA stuff and the forensic stuff that they can do. But again, I don't know the detail. We don't know whether these two ladies were respectively cremated or buried. But I mean, that's just my experience of, of obviously being a true crime consumer myself and knowing that these things happen. And obviously we've had you know cases in the past. Uh, I think it was the Carlos Monzon case where there was an exhumation that took place, if you remember rightly. Right. So... Yep. It can be done. And thing, things were missing on that one, weren't they? I know, yeah, they exactly. Out, they pulled out, it was like bits missing, bits of organs. That was a fucking weird one, that one, wasn't it? So, you know, there's, if, if if obviously that was the case and he was able to do that, then that could really bring some fresh evidence to light, potentially, with them having so much on him, with him being on the sex offenders register in the US, and, you know, probably with them keeping tabs on him all the time. It's, it's a wonder, like you say, why something still might happen in this whole case yeah. and there still might be one more twist in the tale of this story and I'd like to think that there is and even if it's the fact that he turns out to be completely exonerated from these crimes completely and that the conspiracies and the coincidences that we've brought to the attention of you guys listening are just that then fine fair enough however if off the back of this episode it gets people thinking again and it gets people wondering and there's people within the Florida State area that can actually do a bit more digging and a bit more information finding, then maybe, just maybe, this could potentially be reopened and further information could be found. I'm not looking for the guy to get, like, I just don't want him shoved in prison for the sake of being shoved in prison. But what I'm trying to get at here, Johnston, is, is like... If, if he's legit guilty of this and he's not been put away from it and he's not been convicted of it, then he needs to be. But it's one of those cases where, like, you've got to feel for the family members of yeah. the victims and those that are still living that have experienced it. 
they they're the ones that need that closure and i don't think they're ever going to get it unless something new comes to light and let's hope like off the back of this episode that maybe just maybe like i said earlier that there may be more conversations via reddit there may be more conversations between people in the florida state area and actually maybe something does happen and for me that would be that would be progression even if it turned out he was exonerated from it all at least then you can say that involvement and that influence in in trying to make something happen you know it it kind of goes well with with what needs to happen for the for the families of those victims yeah and i think i think the one thing that really resonated with me was the channel 10 television station that actually have a detective saying that they believe that roberto medina was the killer they named him and he was living across the street from opal will which I think it's Opal Will that has the, the struggle with him as well, which sort of makes you think she knew him. I don't know. I'm Who knows? You, you start making conspiracy theories, you don't know. But you're right. It is. It, it takes a lot for a detective to turn around and say that, though. You know, to actually say that they believe that he's a serial killer, name him, almost put a bit of pressure on him to make a mistake. I feel like that is what they were trying to do. That's That's just how I felt. And the other thing is, where are those other two wedding rings? I mean, if they were ever to find those, that would be a that would be massive, wouldn't it? The fact they only found the one, which was his sexual assault. But if he is as crazy and a sick individual as basically that detective Michael Bailey insinuated, then he would be the type of guy to keep hold of them wedding rings. And they, you could well find them being cropping up somewhere at some point but it's just the whole thing Sean is it's quite a ride isn't it the story of Roberto Medina or John Garcia whatever you want to call him he does have many more aliases as well I, I couldn't quite get them all but uh, there was there was a few even if he is exonerated for that you know he hasn't been he's not charged he isn't actually a murderer but to do what he done in that sexual assault and try to kill a woman that is enough for me to suggest even then and I, that guy to be so two-faced as well in 87, you know, only two years on or a year on from getting out of prison and he goes and sexually assaults somebody after he's had all them people saying how much of a nice person that cunt is, that is just shows me that this guy isn't right. For him to portray a certain person and then go and do that to someone suggests to me there's something more sinister to this guy than just what he's being done for. Well, you think about some of the serial killers that were hidden in plain sight. Ted Bundy springs to mind. You know, look at him yeah. on the forefront. You know about Ted. He was a very charismatic man who, who basically charmed his way into people's lives the way he did. And yet he was what he was. So it is quite a strong possibility that, you know, it seems to be a certain type of character that does this type of stuff. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer was another one, another serial God, killer. Oh, yeah, that was he awful, was, that one, isn't it? Ex- oh. ex- exactly, exactly. Sick. But look at look at the way he was able to lure different people into this false sense of security. It's what it's what these types of people do. Now, what Medina did to that woman that he was convicted for, it was horrendous, but it was one step away from potentially being done for a murder charge if not for the fact that he didn't realise the person was dead. So that again makes you think it reels you back into that thought it process does. of... yeah. It does, doesn't he it? she's dead. He's cut the phone line thinking even if she isn't dead, she ain't going to get help. She's going to die anyway. I mean... There you go. It's, it's conspiracy theories. It's it's reeling you right back in. And, and you guys listening, I'm sure it kind of 
leaves you on a bit of a helter-skelter journey, really, because you're going over all these little bumps thinking, oh, it's this, it's that. Could it be this? Could it be that? And I suppose that's the whole point for us of presenting this story of who is Roberto Medina. Like, if you didn't know him before, you certainly ain't going to forget about him now. You really ain't going to forget about him now. In, in fact... Give you nightmares. I think, yeah, exactly. I think what's going to happen off the back of you listening to this is that you're probably going to do what most people do, which is you go and start searching the internet yourself. Start finding the forums, start finding everything that's been sourced for the episode, start finding all the little bits of information. And that's kind of what I do when I watch certain things or I look at certain things. So I'm pretty sure you guys listening are probably going to go and do the same thing now. But yeah, one hell of a story. Really sinister, dark moments. And it's one of them open moments where things could actually take a turn at some point down the line and we could be back here reporting on this in the future but in terms of its its sort of narrative for the darker side of boxing it certainly fits well within it and it is certainly one of those cases that if more information does come to light we will certainly be one of the first to be out there talking about it and presenting it because it certainly goes in line with what we've done here for this episode and We hope as listeners, you've enjoyed us telling this story. You've enjoyed the way we've presented this story to you guys. And if you have, please do let us know on social media at darker underscore side underscore pod on Twitter. Or you can find us across all other social media platforms at BTR Boxing Podcast Network. That's Facebook, that's Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, even on TikTok as well. Please find us on there. Like, share, retweet, do the necessaries to support us. We really do appreciate it. And if you've not subscribed to us on this feed, please do it on Apple or on Spotify. You can find us on YouTube if you do want to consume the audio that way. You can find us on any available podcasting app out there as well. So please make sure you do subscribe and leave a rating and leave a review. Finally, Big thank you to the patrons of this podcast. Your support has been valuable in putting this season together. And as always, we've given you early access to all the episodes. So I hope you've really enjoyed having it earlier than anybody else and having it ad-free as well. Thank you to you guys for supporting us as always. Well, that is it for this episode. So who really is Roberto Medina? Well, now you know. Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.